I can now jump into the audience and give you all a big kiss. The women and the men, I'll, kiss. I'll even kiss the men. I'll kiss those big, powerful men down there. I won't love it, but I'll kiss them. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. This will not stand this aggression against the Kuwait. You didn't build that. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. You smell what Barack is cooking. Indeed, I did have a relationship with Mr. Whiskey that was not appropriate. America is a strong force for peace. Government is the problem. Sit down, you'll hear what I have to say. You think? And my vice president has shot someone. You're listening to the Oil and Gas Geopolitics Podcast. Here is your host, Jordan Driscoll. This podcast is brought to you by T, the Empowerment Alliance. The Empowerment Alliance fights for affordable, clean, domestic, and abundant energy for America's energy independence. They want to keep the politics in this podcast, but out of the energy industry. If you want to learn more about what the Empowerment uh, Alliance fights for or help support the work they're doing, visit teaoggn.org. That's T O G G N dot org. And um, yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. I can tell you they're incredibly passionate about promoting American energy independence. And we hope you'll check them out, sign up for their newsletter, and, uh, you know, see, see what all they've got going on. They're great folks, and we definitely appreciate them sponsoring this podcast. So, welcome to the program, My Huddled Masses. I am the aforementioned Jordan Driscoll, and I will be your diminutive ATM of reckless opinion on all things geopolitical uh, that affect the uh, the energy sphere. So, uh, yeah. So what's this show going to be like? So it's episode one, obviously. Um, I think it's fair to say that this is going to be kind of an evolving process. We'll probably, um, you know, we'll tweak things here and there as we go. But by and large, here's what it's going to be. Um, most episodes, it's probably going to be covering up a couple of headlines that I think are noteworthy or interesting. Uh, uh, doing a little bit of chit-chatting about that. And then probably doing a deep dive on whatever the biggest geopolitical event, in my opinion, is that's happening presently that affects our, our sector, right? So sometimes we're going to have guests on, sometimes we won't. Um, just kind of depends on, um, you know, uh, whatever whatever mood I happen to be in, quite frankly. Uh, I certainly appreciate Mark LaCour, our editor-in-chief, uh, letting me spearhead this program. Uh, is it kind of like making Colonel Mustard a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Yeah, probably, but here we are. We're just going to wing it and see what happens. So anyway... All that being said, uh, let's just get down to yakking about some geopolitics. So grab yourself a cup of coffee, and let's get started. So yeah, obviously I think the big thing, the one I wanted to kick off with here talking about, is this, uh, this uh, well, you know, we got a war on in Europe, right? Coming up on its one-year anniversary, we've got the, uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. That uh, just thank God we've got that, right? We needed another land war in Europe. And thank God our boy Putin, he made it happen for us. I was thinking I was going to get through my life without ever seeing a land war in Europe. But, you know, hey, Christmas came came a year early. What can I say? So this kind of follows along 
and a bit of a um, <clears throat> a bit of an interesting, you know, historical. Uh, uh, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, Putin's obviously a former KGB guy and all that sort of good stuff. And and you know, hey, hot take here, but maybe that Putin guy could turn out to be a bit of a bad egg. All right, you heard it here first. But historically, Russia as a nation. Um, I'm not the only ones that have done this, obviously, but but historically, Russia, in the context of what we're talking about here, has got a bit of a track record when it comes to you know the short, victorious war. Uh, whenever you got some sort of a, a social economic problem, you go find yourself a, a war to go get into, pick on somebody, it creates a fervor of patriotic uh, uh, happiness and euphoria, and um, usually jumpstarts the economy. You get to own some new shit. And everyone's everyone's a happy little camper. At least that's the the theory. And if you look back at Russia's history, and we could do this with any number of nations. Hell, we could do it with the United States for that matter. But for our purposes, we're talking about Russia right now. You can look back and and see this going back hundreds of years. I mean, and what's funny is it's really even in this part of the world uh, uh, historically. So, I mean, we'll just do a quick. A quick little recap here, but you know, starting with 1783, you've got the uh, annexation of Crimea. That's right, that place that that Russia went into a couple of years back that everyone just got all completely, you know, twerked off about. Uh, yeah, the first time they did that was back in 1873. So while the United States was, you know, a newly blossoming little country, uh, Russia was annexing Crimea from the Ottoman Empire. And um, now, obviously, it didn't have anything to do with oil and gas. It was a political issue. The Ottoman Empire at the time had gotten quite weak, and there were uh, um, a lot of concerns over um, them being able to hold the territories they had, the uh, the Crimean, Crimean Tartars, which was sort of the ethnic group uh, nation-state, kind of broke off, was independent for a little while. Surprisingly enough, and this is going to sound very familiar if you pay attention to what has been happening on these sort of Russian satellite states, but the Crimean Tartars broke away from the Ottoman Empire, which was kind of in a state of decline at the time. And uh, they they ended out sort of having their own nation, sort of like a Republic of Texas, but in Crimea, for, I don't know, like 10 years or something. And anyway, yeah, by the way, if you're a history nerd, then you'll probably enjoy this show because obviously geopolitics has a lot of historical context and we're going to kind of be jumping in and out there like a drunk time lord. Anyway, so you've got the uh, you've got the Crimean Peninsula here. It's It's gone off on its own from the Ottoman Empire. Um, I think it was uh, Catherine the Great was the czar at the time in Russia and uh, basically just decided, yeah, you know what um, – those guys are just having a real hard time. There's all this chaos. We should probably send Russian soldiers in to um, to really just nail the place down and get it up to ship shape. And it's kind of funny. They did the same thing in Georgia. Did the same thing in Crimea a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, th- this is all the way back in 1783. Russia decides that the Crimea is not able to govern itself, sends in the soldiers, and annexes it. It's the first time we hear this story about Crimea, and in fact, this is where the whole Russian claim to Crimea comes from, is they held it and, you know, they went in and took it in 1783, and, and boom, here we are. It's, it's been theirs for a long time. Uh, at least that's the, the Russian philosophy. All right, so moving forward, 
you know, uh, 70 or so years, you get to the actual Crimean War, which was a notable war because it was, um, you know, taking place uh, 1853 to 1856. And notable for a couple of reasons. One, huge loss of life. Um, Basically, uh, the Ottoman Empire was still in a state of, you know, just perpetual decline. At the time, it was called the Sick Old Man of Europe. Uh, You can imagine how nice that must have felt. Anyway... Ottoman Empire is collapsing. Um, the Russians decide that they need to bolster the situation. They want to capitalize on the collapse or the presumed imminent collapse of the Ottoman Empire and gobble up as much of the Caucasus and the Balkans and all of that. And they they did. They took quite a bit of territory moving all the way up to the Danube and a lot of places that are you know, just part of that Balkans region. Uh, needless to say, uh, the superpowers of the world at the time, which was basically France and Britain, they weren't super thrilled by this. So they decided to get involved and go bolster the Ottoman Empire and try and hold down the fort and keep the sick old man of Europe from, uh, from falling down in the bathtub and breaking his hip. War went on for about three years. It was kind of a mess. Um, Florence Nightingale, the concept of modern-day nursing where you actually wash your hands before you treat a patient came into vogue. Uh, trench warfare became um, a big hairy deal, uh, both in the Crimean War and also a contemporary war that was being fought just a few years after this one ends, and that's the United States Civil War. Woohoo! Um, at any rate, so yeah, this is the second conflict inside of a century that deals with Russia and Crimea because they just love engaging in that. I mean, they just, ooh, ooh, the Crimea, we need to fight there. Um uh, that famous, I think it's Tennyson poem, Charge of the Light Brigade. It's about a battle in the Crimean War where a British light infantry unit gets wiped out because of bad decision-making. Um, but anyway, so yeah, you've got you've got the Crimean War, uh, so that happens. Uh, again, these are times where Russia looked at their situation and said, you know, we could take just a bit— uh, of, of this Crimea thing here, and we could just have that, and it'd be nice if we could just tuck it into the rest of the empire. And again, the idea was this was going to be an easy-peasy thing, and in both times, it, it kind of turned into a bit of a debacle. Uh, fast forward to 1904 to 1905, you've got the Russo-Japanese War, and I believe this is actually where the, the whole a short, victorious war kind of philosophy really congealed. At the time, the Russian Empire was sort of in its uh, last last 15 years of existence. They didn't know that at the time, but uh, things were pretty bad. They had a really backwards economy. Um, they were industrialized uh, quite poorly compared to the rest of Europe and, and the United States at the time. They didn't have as much railway lines. They had a military that they didn't realize it at the time, but was also quite quite a ways back technologically. I mean, they still had, you know, I would give you an example. I mean, tanks came out in World War One, and the Russians didn't have tanks. They were still, you know, rolling with predominantly horse cavalry units. So there's that. Uh, anyway, but the Russo-Japanese War, the, the Tsar effectively wanted kind of to find somebody that they could fight that would be kind of a nice thing because they had this this revolution that was brewing. There was a lot of uh, folks, and I mean, this is an embarrassingly compressed history of, of Russia, right? This is just getting us to the point where we can talk about what's happening today. So humor me, and yes, I know I'm glossing over a lot of details a little briskly. Just just roll with me on this. So anyway, they needed a war, something that would be 
easy to fight, and Japan at the, at the time was considered to be a nobody. You know, I mean, Japan was just opening up to the West. Japan was not thought of as a particularly, you know, threatening nation. Um, and so, yeah, they had a really brief war with Japan, and quite frankly, they got their asses kicked. And I mean, handedly, handedly. Uh, the Russian fleet at Port Arthur was basically uh, put to the torch and just sunk before it even got out to sea to fight. Um, the Russians had to sail the rest of their fleet all the way around the world to try and reinforce it. And by the time they got there, they just got beat again. The Japanese guns had longer range. They were more accurate. The Japanese Navy was way more disciplined. Um, and, and nobody anticipated, nobody knew that Russia was going to be his uh, or that Japan was going to be as, as capable as they were, that they had put as much time and effort and money and, and all of that into being ready for this war. <clears throat> and so it was a humiliating defeat. I mean, they ended up signing sort of a, a peace treaty that, uh, not super great for Russia, really made them look like a bunch of dipshits in the uh, broader geopolitical world at the time. And it really showed everybody that Russia was just a lot further behind the curve technologically and, and economically than anyone realized. I mean, there was no internet back then. So, you know, you just assumed it's a big giant blot on the map. It must be pretty badass. But no, it turns out that that they had fallen way behind the times and the Russia-Japanese war put that into perspective in a very public light. So <clears throat> moving on, of course, we all know the Russian Empire falls. It's replaced by the Soviet Union. And then we move on into a uh, and a little later on, we got the Soviet-Afghan War because, you know, again, we all just love going into Afghanistan. It's just, you know, I, I was in Afghanistan a whole bunch, and I'm just going to say this. Son of a bitch, why do we always have to, why does every, you know, there's an old saying that Afghanistan is where empires go to die. And boy, it seems true. I mean, there's nothing there except for opium. There's mountains everywhere. Uh, the people don't particularly want you there, and they will certainly fight to get you out. Um, it's just it's wild how everybody has to go have a decade-long dalliance in Afghanistan and then leave in, in a you know complete debacle. But here we are. So, yeah, we got that going for us. Soviets did the same thing. They went to Afghanistan in 1979, and they were there until 1989. And um, if you think our <laughs> Afghanistan situation was a little dicey, listen, when I was there, I can assure you, you could walk anywhere around Bagram Air Base and see literally dozens upon dozens upon dozens, possibly a hundred. I mean, there were a lot of just burned out hulks of tanks aircraft, helicopter, all of them Soviet, that had been shot down, gunned down, whatever, just debris fields littered with all this stuff. Um, I mean, it was a mess, an absolute mess. And it's it's actually quite funny. Russia didn't even want to, or the Soviet Union, I should say, didn't even want to go into Afghanistan at the time because it was uh, really, there were a lot of folks in the, in the Politburo that were kind of going, why would we go in there, you know? Um, the... Afghans had had a, a government that was run by a king. It got overthrown and basically a sort of quasi, not quite communist, but communist light people's republic got set up. They didn't call it that, but that's effectively what it was, was their goal was to move the country to a, a more communist situation. And there's a lot of stuff in the geopolitics with that, you know, as far as they were doing that because Pakistan was historically an enemy and Pakistan was more aligned with the United States at the time and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, we're going to just gloss over that for now. We can talk about it sometime later. Point is, 
that uh, Russia went in thinking it was going to be a quick nip-tuck operation. They were going to go in, pow, 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 boom, done, problem solved, have a new Soviet Socialist Satellite Republic, and everything would be fine. Ten years went by, and it was a absolute bloodletting that eventually involved Russia just pulling out, and it was probably a pretty significant uh, cost in both treasure and lives that helped facilitate the eventual downfall of the Soviet Union. When I bring all that up, because Russia, part of their motivation for going into Afghanistan, while never explicitly said, the folks that have talked about it since then said you know, they didn't really want to, but that put them closer to the oil fields in the Caucasus, gave them a way to be really close to Iran, and and you know kind of cement their control in that area and have more access to the Middle East for potential further expansion into the uh, the lucrative oil fields. Because hey, we all love that black gold, right? So. All the while that this is happening, you've got Russia just discovering, you know, uh, I mean, keep in mind the 1970s, right? You've got a couple of couple of major milestones. You've got uh, the oil crisis of the 70s where gas prices were soaring and there wasn't enough inventory and, you know, OPEC was doing all of its good stuff. And, um, you know, the world was just kind of reeling from this, this just – this lack of, of supply of oil and, and sky-high prices and all that, which, you know, hey, if any of us have been in this industry for a while, we've all seen it cyclical, but, I mean, that was kind of a, a high point. Granted, you know, they had it pretty easy. Prices didn't go negative, right? <laughs> anyway, so while, while this is happening, Russia discovers these huge reserves of, of uh, oil and gas in Siberia, just massive untapped reserves. And so there's a lot of conversation that starts to happen in the 1980s and late 70s, early 80s about, you know, trying to pipe that natural gas somewhere, trying to do something with it. And and the Soviet economy was kind of reeling. I mean, they were embroiled in a very costly and unpleasant conflict in, in Afghanistan. Uh, the Cold War was wildly expensive. And let's be honest, a Cold War is kind of like a divorce. Whoever spends the most money wins. That's just that's how it works. You just have to outspend your opponent and hope your pockets are deeper than theirs. And if you just spend enough long enough, then you'll win. You'll get the lake house. You'll get the visitation. You'll win Afghanistan. Uh, uh, you'll bankrupt the Soviet Union. That's just how a Cold War works, uh, in in my mind anyway. So you've got that happening. Uh, Russia had started to look out to private industry to possibly coming in and investing, and the idea being that they could sort of bolster their economy, get some foreign investment in there, um, because, yeah, they were struggling, and it was, you know, tensions were heating back up with the U.S., especially over the Afghanistan stuff, and, and they were just hemorrhaging money at the time. And so they were looking to get some foreign investors in there, and they got some big names. You had ExxonMobil, you had Shell. Uh, they were all lined up to go help build this oil pipeline, and the idea was they were going to make this trans-Siberian pipeline that was going to go from the natural gas fields in Siberia and bring it all the way through the Soviet Union and through modern-day Ukraine and into Western Europe, allowing Russia to sell natural gas to, uh, to Western Europe. And I'm sure most of you guys, if some of you guys were probably around for that, some of you guys might be hearing this for the first time or you've you know, heard about it in the news, but that was that's kind of the short story there. So what's interesting is about this time frame is 
I'm actually just, I'm going to read you this quote. Actually, I think this is worth repeating. This this should be said. Um, let me see if I'm pulled up so I get it right here. <clears throat> so I want you to tell me who said this. The 3,500-mile gas pipeline from Siberia to Germany is a direct threat to the future of Western Europe. It will create serious repercussions and a dangerous reliance on Russian fuel. Now, what you would assume, hearing that statement, that this is probably a briefing to the president. And you'd be right. That is, in fact, a CIA memo that was given to the president talking about the pipeline situation in Europe. Now, what you probably don't realize is this was not given to President Biden. This was given to President Reagan back in 1982. So investors were coming on board. This pipeline's getting built. And what's really funny is in 1982, Reagan loses it over this pipeline. Um, at this point, Reagan's called Russia or the Soviet Union the evil empire, and it's a big, hairy deal. And nobody's, you know, Reagan's completely beside himself that this pipeline's going to happen. And he lobbies against it with, with NATO and the European Union, and he and Margaret Thatcher get into it. Uh, famously, this is actually one of the few uh, pieces of policy that, that Reagan and Margaret Thatcher were really uh, crossways on. They, they were just completely on different sides of it. Thatcher wanted cheap gas to moderate prices because Europe was mightily suffering after the 70s from an energy standpoint. And um, Reagan was really, really against this pipeline um, on the grounds that he believed Russia, and well, again, forgive me, the Soviet Union would use this as a means of controlling energy in, um, in Western Europe, and Europe would become dependent upon it, and then that would give Russia, the, the Soviet Union, that stranglehold. Um, that uh, economically they didn't have, as well as just propping them up, sending you know millions upon millions into the Russian coffers, Soviet coffers, and um, allowing them to use that to fund their war effort in Afghanistan, upgrade their military technology, and so on and so forth. Got to get my my sip of my coffee here. Like I said, uh, yeah, we're we got a nice dark roast this evening. I say evening. I'm recording at you now ten o'clock at night. All right, so. Here we are. We got this pipeline getting built, BP shell, a whole bunch of others. They want to get in there, and they want to invest in this, and Reagan puts the kibosh on it. He hits them with a bunch of sanctions. Now, interestingly enough, the oil and gas industry of the United States at the time fought Reagan and lobbied heavily to not sanction this pipeline in the Soviet Union getting built because they were getting promises from the Soviet Union that they would have opportunities to to explore and help build out some of these reserves and they would get, you know, a piece of the pie with this pipeline and with future pipelines and all this stuff. And U.S. oil and gas was on board with that. They're like, yeah, let's get out there to Siberia and let's start, you know, doing some exploration and let's get a piece of that uh, that sweet Russian Siberian natural gas and so the U.S. oil and gas industry, especially the, the majors, were just, they were not having it with Reagan shutting this thing down. They were pretty pissed off. Um, and they lobbied and fought. And, you know, I, I believe there was a quote, if I can find it quickly enough here, I'll try to give it to you guys. Um, 
But there was a uh, uh, a quote from one of the CEOs, and I can't remember who it was or which company, that basically you know accused Reagan of just. Uh, gosh, I wish I could find it uh, off that I. I wish I'd jotted it down. I should have. If I were a better, more professional host, I might have. Um, but basically just accusing Reagan of being, you know, this tyrant that's, you know, trying to stop uh, free market economies from happening. And I think the irony of that is just delicious. I mean, first off, Reagan is held today right, wrong, or indifferent as being sort of this this patron saint of modern conservatism. And regardless of where you fall on the spectrum, he's just kind of been turned into that, um, you know. And, yeah, listen, he got us our first trillion dollars of national debt. Uh, he was trying to shut down this pipeline, uh, you know, and was accused of being anti-free market because he wanted to, to stop a Russian pipeline. Um, but, yeah, he was getting hit with all that sort of stuff in a pretty heavy way, Um and ultimately, you know, the sanctions held. He wouldn't let Americans invest in it or have anything to do with it. And the pipeline still got built and it went through the Ukraine into, into Europe and off we go. Well, moving right along, you've got, um, you know, the Afghan war happening through the 80s while this pipeline's getting built. And then you've got um, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, you know, and there's a lot of deals and back and forth with the Ukraine, which splits off and becomes its own nation. Uh, Ukraine had been historically under, well, <laughs> that's a whole other conversation. We can go into the history of Ukraine and Russia at some other point in time. But at this juncture, they split off and became their own nation. Um, uh, one of the you know uh, Commonwealth of Independent States, which are the fifteen or so Soviet satellite nations that uh, that split off after the after the wall came down, the Soviet Union fell. So. We get into the 90s, and, uh, you know, it's a time of uh, great optimism, great hope. We're all very thrilled with all that. And um, what's interesting is, you know, the first talks of the Nord Stream pipeline start coming up is when you start getting sort of the first inklings. Um, and really, the inklings didn't start until really the early 2000s. But, you know, this pipeline is 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 here. It's going. I mean, it's from Siberia into, into Western Europe, and... And, yeah, Europe starts getting that, you know, just that needle's right in the vein there, baby. They got that cheap uh, that cheap Russian gas coming in, and the Cold War's over, and everybody's happy, so it's all perfectly fine. Well, you get to the 2000s, and um, at this point in time, you've got a couple of major shifts. First off, you've got... Uh, uh, Boris Yeltsin stepping down and uh, Vladimir Putin stepping up as the new uh, uh, leader of the uh, the Russian Federation. Now, and I just want to pause for a second because God knows we've had Putin in office. You know, think about this. Putin's been in office for 23 years now. 23 years this man's been in office. Yes, he did the little switcheroo thing with uh, uh, Dmitry uh, Medvedev, you know, when he went to the basically made up office of prime minister effectively uh, for a couple of years and then switched back. And now in 2024, there's uh, his term limits reset uh, according to the constitutional changes they made, which is hilarious. I think that's, uh, it'd be a lot funnier if it wasn't so serious, but you know, Hey, Zai uh, in Japan or not Japan, excuse me, in China, he got his, you know, unlimited terms, life, life and power there. 
uh, our boy Vladimir's uh, working on it from a different angle. So, hey, you know, dictators are going to dictate. So, is what it is. Moving right along, uh, you got Putin in office, right? You had your first guy was Boris Yeltsin. And can we just take a second and think for just a minute, can we just imagine what a Russia might look like without a former Soviet in charge? Boris Yeltsin was obviously, you know, a Soviet politician his entire career, effectively. Uh, Putin was famously a member of the KGB. And um, also, famously, George Bush looked in his eyes and said that I saw his soul and I found him trustworthy. Uh, I guess that hasn't aged very well. But, yeah, I mean, what would Russia look like? Can we even imagine a world where a, a a, com- a literal member of the Soviet Union, someone who was a part of that state apparatus, is no longer running this country. I mean, can your imagination even conceive of what that would look like? Um, I mean, my God, it's been so long. Surely we're running out of communists to stay in charge of this joint, right? Uh, anyway, anyway. Yeah, try and, try and picture what you think that's going to look like at some time. We'll have to have a discussion on that. But you get to the early 2000s, and you've got the Russo-Georgia War, which, you know, nowadays is kind of just like a total speed bump thing that happened, right? I mean, when was the last time anybody thought about that in this country? And I say this country, I mean the U.S. Uh, the Russo-Georgia War, again, you're back in the Caucasus. You're back creeping up on the oil fields, getting closer to Azerbaijan and some of those areas down there, uh, which previously had a lot of uh, a lot of the Soviets— um, operational uh, oil fields. And, um, you know, they just took a little bite here and there out of Georgia. And, um, you know, again, it was kind of that same philosophy, right? It was a short, victorious war. They had a lot of economic issues that were starting to to crop up. They had a lot of uh, corruption allegations that were starting to happen. And, hey, a quick quick win at a war, that'll bolster the, uh, the approval ratings. I mean, hell, even... Any president after a military operation usually gets a bump in popularity unless it's just something wildly, wildly inappropriate. Um, and this is no different. This gave uh, Putin's administration kind of a little bit of a booster shot uh, to keep it going during kind of a time where Russia was was uh, experiencing some issues. Um, that's 2008. Now, interestingly enough, around the same time, you start getting the the Nord Stream pipeline coming up, and that's a, a talking point of conversation. And so what's interesting is Reagan was against the whole pipeline to begin with. He didn't want there to be a pipeline because he thought Europe was going to get too addicted. You've got the Soviet Union collapsed. You've got this pipeline running through Ukraine, and all of a sudden the idea for this Nord Stream pipeline comes up, which would create a northern diversion allowing the natural gas to bypass going through Ukraine and Belarus, or at least the there is an avenue for it to do something other than that. And it would go into the Baltic Sea and straight into Germany, and from there into France and Italy and, and so on and so forth. You know, And um, this did a couple of interesting things. So one, it took out the transit fees that places like Ukraine, Belarus, uh, some of those other smaller former Soviet satellite companies, they're not making money off the transit as the, uh, the gas isn't passing through their country. Um, but it's also kind of interesting if you think about it, considering where we're at today, that more than 15 years ago, somebody had the idea 
to bypass Ukraine. I mean, it was already a perfectly good pipeline, but what if we just had an alternate route that you could use, just in case there was ever a problem in Ukraine and we couldn't use the main one? Now, I'm not saying this was a far-reaching, you know, one-and-a-half-decade-long scheme by a former KGB officer to conquer Ukraine. That would be crazy when you say it out loud, but it is interesting that that did happen. So, early 2000s, Nord Stream starts coming along. Idea starts getting floated. And what's interesting is Reagan, obviously, against pipeline. Uh, Bush was against the pipeline. Uh, He backed Reagan's play on that. Uh, Bill Clinton, against Trans-Siberian Pipeline, said it was concerned about Russia's energy control over Western Europe. Then you get to Bush Jr., W., uh, who was vocally opposed to the Nord Stream Pipeline. Uh, for all the same reasons that Reagan and everybody else said it. Um, Then we get Barack Obama, vehemently opposed to there being a pipeline through there and uh, and in the Baltic. Um, Donald Trump, obviously famously against it, and Joe Biden famously, um, or actually famously, he is weirdly enough against this. Um, And what's fascinating is, I mean, when was the last time that you could go back, I mean, how many is that? Reagan, Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama, Trump, Biden. That's seven presidents. Seven presidents, and all seven of them have uniformly been concerned about this and have uniformly spoken out against it. All seven, Democrats and Republicans, uniformly. When was the last time any of them agreed on fucking anything for any length of time, consistently across decades. I mean, that is uh, maybe the biggest bombshell uh, politically to take away from this thing. It's just a whole bunch of U.S. Democrats and Republican presidents actually agreed and stayed consistent on a piece of policy uh, across the board. I mean, I remember listening to the Obama, um, I think it was Romney or maybe McCain. I can't remember which um, debate it was. Uh and there was all this talk about, you know, Russia and Russia and Russia. And uh, President Obama at the time, maybe Senator, I can't remember how, which, which term it was, um, he says, uh, you know, uh, the 1950s called and they want your foreign policy back. And I'll be honest, as much as I got that Russia was a concern and we should be taking that more seriously, I laughed. I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, is it the most original joke in the world? No, but... God damn it, that wasn't funny when he said that. So, but it's funny, he said that, and then in office, he was like, yeah, no, we don't need to have Russia controlling the energy uh, into the into, into Western Europe. That's just no good. That's not going to work for us. And so he says that, but, I mean, right there, he's just immediately, no, we don't need to have this Nord Stream thing. It's going to be a problem. So Nord Stream Pipeline comes online. You know, roughly 2011, 2012. Uh, first line came on in 2011. Second line in 2012. And then very soon after, you start getting talk of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline coming online. They would have a slightly different route, but pretty much be the same. And, you know, increase the capacity and all of that. And so, unsurprisingly, there were a lot of issues that cropped up throughout um, the time that Russia's been supplying the uh, the its natural gas to Europe. I mean, there have been a few disputes that have happened where they've shut things off or they've slowed things down or bottlenecked things when they weren't getting their way. And it's the same thing that, you know, Reagan and the CIA and everybody else was kind of 
concerned about, I mean, as far back as the 80s. And uh, unsurprisingly, we get to the, uh, the Ukraine war, which is, like I said, that's kind of our deep dive today. Um, now, obviously, you know, we kind of did a lot of history on how we got here. But, uh, you know, the bottom line is that, that Russia's moved into this special military operation. Not a war, it's a special military operation, kind of like a policing action in Vietnam, right? That's, that's sort of a similar nomenclature we like to use. Um, the ostensive reason that they've given for doing this is to denazify uh, Ukraine, which is interesting because I personally haven't been to Ukraine, but I feel like whenever Nazis show up anywhere nowadays, they get a lot of press coverage. And I think if we had a whole country full of Nazis running around, uh, we'd have probably read about it somewhere, right? It wouldn't take Vladimir Putin and, you know, the Russian state media to tell, oh, yeah, there's definitely Nazis there. We need to go do something about that. Um, you know, flimsy excuse, but there you are. So, obviously, when they moved in, the the rising suspicion was going to be that some, something was going to go wrong with the pipeline. And as we started piling sanctions onto Russia, that threat became more and more real. And, of course, uh, then they decided to shut things down. They said, you know what? Since you guys are giving us all these sanctions, here's the new rule. We have Article 172, which was a uh, an interesting – I think it was 172 was the, uh, the article number here. But basically, uh, Putin signed a decree after all the sanctions were in place, and Russia got a lot of sanctions. I mean, Russia got more sanctions than the pre-name change Washington commanders. I mean, they – to this day, they're getting hit with all kinds of sanctions. Um as you all well know. But basically, uh, this decree effectively said that, okay, you know what? You've frozen all of our foreign assets. We, Russia defaulted on you know some sovereign debt, which is not super great, but it's the kind of thing that happens when you engage in an illegal war. Uh, and so they said, okay, we're going to sign this decree, and now everybody in Europe has to pay for their natural gas from us in rubles. And the idea was to bypass the sanctions and get money directly flowing into the coffers. And also, because it was all being paid in ruble, that would boost the value of the ruble um, against other foreign currencies where it was absolutely dropping. And at this point, about the only people trading with Russia is like Iran, North Korea, and, you know, to some extent, China. Um, So... Yeah, you know, when that's when you look at a room and those are your allies, you should pause for a minute and think about what you've done with your life. Um, but here we are. So anyway, naturally, people weren't paying in rubles. They were either forbidden from doing that or, or countries just, you know, understood exactly the game and they weren't going to have it. And so Russia's cut things off. And then, of course, we have the infamous Nord Stream pipeline explosions, which at this point have been verified as being explosions. It's been verified as sabotaged. Um, you know, three of the pipelines are pretty much right out of commission. I think Nord Stream 2's got one pipeline that's still potentially functional, although it's not been opened up yet. Um, and yeah, yeah, you know, the obvious situation here is that Russia's accusing the U.S. of doing it as a black ops thing to keep competition out of Europe and, and try and stifle free trade, which I think is funny that, again, that's the that's the story that people are trying to hit us with on that one. Um, you know, the U.S. is accusing or, you know, very heavily implying Russia probably blew it up as sort of a false flag operation, which is not entirely. You know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, really. 
Um, that does seem like the most likely, you know, scenario if you had to look at it. I mean, nobody else would care about this pipeline. And so, yeah, that would make sense, right? But if you look at the war in Georgia that happened back in the mid-2000s, if you look at what they've done uh, the first time they retook the Crimea when they re-annexed the Crimea in 2014, um, both times they, they would cut off the gas supply and do the exact thing that everybody's freaking out about now. And... In the case of the uh, Georgia War, there was a pipeline that magically blew up that was supplying natural gas. It was a Russian pipeline, and it's like, oh, gee, boy, what happened? Sabotage. Who could have done it? Dur, dur, dur. And I think at the time, you know, the U.S. probably got blamed for that, too. Um, so it's not like this is an unprecedented, shocking state of affairs. It's kind of like these little short, victorious wars, right? This isn't the first time that it's happened. Not the first time Russia's marched in somewhere and said, hey, we're going to have a quick little thing. And yeah, let's be very clear. We may be hitting the year anniversary of the Ukraine war. This is a war that no one thought was going to last more than, a, what, a week, two weeks? I mean, Russia rolled in with hundreds of thousands of troops. What was known to be a wildly more powerful, more funded, more effective, more grizzled and battle-hardened military, um, we all just knew those were absolute objective reality facts. We knew that that's what it was. Russia was going to walk in, they were going to steamroll across the country, and in a fortnight, they'd be raising the Russian tricolor flag over Kiev, and that would just be the end of it. And we'd all be very pissed off, and we'd wag our fingers at uh, Putin, and then we'd just go, well, fuck, what can you do? But that didn't happen. Turns out the Ukrainians, evidently, weren't going to sit around for that shit, and um, it also turns out that the Russian military, at least the army, not super impressive. Um, they've just, you know, replaced their commanding general yet again. Uh, they have lost thousands upon thousands of people, machines, equipment, aircraft, a, a naval sh- a cruiser, a cr- They lost a cr- There are only like two or three countries in the world that even float cruisers in their navy. Cruisers are one of the bigger surface combatants you can have outside of, like, amphibious warfare and aircraft carrier, Russia's got a handful of cruisers in their fleet. They lost one of those to a country that has virtually no navy. Um, Jesus, think about that for a second. They lost it. Anyway, so the point is, it's been embarrassing for them. It has not been the absolute best-case scenario for the Russian uh, non non-invasion total special military operation, quote-unquote, scenario that they're in. And by the way, after this podcast, if I do die mysteriously, you should probably check Putin out. And if not Putin, the next person you should check out is is my ex-girlfriend. But in the meantime, uh, while I'm still drawing breath, uh, yeah, so... So we've got this pipeline that's shut down, and there's all this accusations going around. And this really brings us to kind of the final question here, and that is, where do we go from here? What's the next logical step in this debacle that's happening? Uh, It's going to take months to repair these pipelines, even if we start today, which um, I haven't found any evidence that they've necessarily started doing that. Um, You've got a massive energy shortage that's hitting Europe during winter, and while it's been unseasonably warm thus far, the projection is it's about to get a lot colder in Europe. And, um, yeah, you've got just a huge amount of natural gas that's not coming in. I mean, keep in mind, Russia was supplying, what, 55% at the height of uh, Europe's cheap natural gas? 
and now there's not enough supply to go around for the demand that they're about to have. So yeah, Reagan's Reagan's fears from the 1980s are now coming to pass. Um, at the end of the day, uh, even you know, and if we don't repair these pipelines soon, the saltwater corrosion is going to be so bad that they're just not going to be operational whatsoever. And you're talking about replacing, you know, effectively the whole thing, and nobody's ever going to fund that. And even if you did, let's just play that mind game, you know, for a minute. Would you trust Russia to have this pipeline? Would you trust them to supply cheap natural gas? You know, Germany can say that by 2030 they're going to be net neutral and totally renewable, but we all know that that's bullshit. We know that that's not going to happen. There's just no way to make that kind of a push, um, especially with something as tumultuous as a massive war that's completely shifted your entire energy uh, paradigm. Um even if things were running perfectly, I don't believe they could have gotten there by 2030, 2035, maybe even 2040. Um, but they sure as hell aren't going to do it when they're, you know, bereft a massive, possibly majority percentage of their, their heating and industry uh, natural gas uh, needs. Because now they've got to find a way to, to keep things going without that. And they don't have time to worry about all this uh, this renewable stuff because it can't happen fast enough. And so... That's where we're at today. The question is, where do we go? Well, the odds are, if the, does the pipeline get repaired? How the hell should I know? My guess is probably not, but it could. Even if it does get repaired, though, we've got a very serious problem in our hand, and that is, do we trust Russia to be the sole supplier? I mean, we've known this is a problem for decades. Democrats and Republicans have been against it for decades. Um, and how do you solve it? And at the end of the day, it's kind of like dealing with a little bit of a junkie, right? I mean, right this very second, uh, you've got people in Germany in a village trying to prevent coal mines from expanding to try and take up some of the burden uh, that's occurred due to the loss of this natural gas. And that's a whole other conversation we won't get into on this episode. We'll talk about that later on. But the bottom line is that... There's really not much you can you can do uh, to stop Russia from doing. I mean, this is this is and and don't get me wrong. I say Russia. Listen, if you're a nation that's in that situation with that type of tactical advantage, of course you're going to use it. Okay, it's we can argue the debates about you know moral high ground and all that later but at the end of the day if you have a massive economic advantage i mean just taking personalities out of it for a second if you've got that kind of advantage in your pocket and you're in a conflict you're going to use that advantage right uh that's just how it is right we went to afghanistan we brought the b52s even though that didn't make it a fair fight the you know the taliban at the time didn't have any or ever have any b52s we didn't ground them and have our our airmen walk into the battlefield on foot to make it a fair fight that's not how war works you're going to use everything at your disposal military or economic and so what we have to ultimately do is figure out how we are going to supply that need. And obviously, we can't just pipe the stuff over there. We're talking about much larger supply chains, a whole other thing. But uh, we also have the added problem of there's a lot of pressure from elements of our own government in the U.S. to open up other doors. You know, you've got Qatar trying to get involved now and in, in providing some of the natural gas relief into Europe. Um, 
But the bottom line is, you know, obviously we've got our own fights, right? We've got, uh, you know, and not to get too U.S.-specific political, but we've got an administration that's not necessarily looking to grow our own internal resources. They're they're looking for for other avenues, you know, internationally to solve that. Um, so we've got an uphill battle there, and I think ultimately. Europe's nowhere close to uh, to being able to just cut the cord on their addiction, right? It's like a junkie. They've they've had the cheap natural gas way too long, and now they don't have it, and they don't know what to do, and who's going to supply it? Uh, but as we all know, nature pours a vacuum, and someone will furnish that. The question is, who's it going to be? Us? Is it going to be OPEC? Is it going to be somebody else? Uh, are they going to go back to Russia like a battered spouse? And uh, when all the dust settles on this and say, yeah, you were really terrible, but okay, let's do it again. I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I've got my opinions. So we'll hit that up in our next episode. Anyway, I think we've just about run the clock out. You've heard me rant and rave about uh, the Ukraine war, which I thought was an appropriate way to kick this thing off. I do hope you've enjoyed the program, and I do hope you'll you'll download further and uh and uh, join us on this little adventure as we talk about these things. Um, one of the things that we are going to do, and I don't know, when this show goes live, uh, I'm recording about a week and a half, two weeks before NAEP. Uh, it should go live around NAEP. We're going to drop all the episodes. And the hope is uh, that when it drops, uh, either it'll be live the day of or, or very shortly thereafter, we'll have a form on our website for the podcast at, uh, at OGGN.com where you can actually fill out any question or situation that you want my reckless opinion to take a stab at. So we hope that if there's something that's uh, that you just want to hear me rant on, by all means, send it in, and I'll, uh, and I'll try and cover that, um, or at least give you my, my two cents on it and how it affects things uh, on the big picture. So as, uh, as we kick this off, I do hope you enjoyed it. I do hope you'll be back, and... Um, you know, at the end of the day, let's just remember, don't let Russia build a pipeline uh, that supplies uh, all your uh, resources unless you've got a backup plan. I think that's the lesson we learned, right? I'll see you guys soon. Thanks for being here. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Geopolitics Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com. Mm-hmm.